Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Sullison. With me, as always, is my very, very talented friend who has many sides to her personality, the mixtress DC Gina. <laughs> hey, Louise. I like to call it multifaceted, much like a diamond. Oh, I like it. I like it. <laughs> Sparkle. I know. I like to sparkle. <laughs> uh, probably more like a cubic zirconia, but whatever. We're good. Still, still, still In sparkles. the right light, you never know. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, Gina, speaking of multiple personalities, do you remember the made-for-TV movie, Sybil, that featured uh, Sally Fields and uh, Joanne Woodward? I mean... Not, I know the movie. I, I probably know multiplicity with um, uh, Michael yeah. Keaton a little bit better just because I thought it was funny. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sybil, the movie was based on a book that was the same name, which was based on the life of Cheryl Ardle Mason, um, who was being treated for dissociative identity disorder. And according to the book, Sybil had over 16 alters which included, but was not limited to, Victoria, a sophisticated young French girl, Marcia Lynn, who was an extremely emotional writer and painter, Vanessa Gale, who was a fun-loving musician, Mike the Carpenter, and Sid the Handyman, Ruthie the Baby, and who could forget Vivacious Marjorie. But in the end, it was Blondie, who emerged and was finally able to integrate all the alters into a full, whole individual, or at least as the story goes. You have to admit, though, if you think about it, if if you had, like, having that many alters, that many talents, would it be all bad? <laughs> think how much you could get done. I'd argue that Hollywood probably has plenty of people with multiple personality disorders. <laughs> And is it a disorder? It's only if you can't function, it is, right? So I guess that's true. Very true. Very true. I don't know, Louise. I only have a psych degree. I don't really think I paid attention too much in my classes. I was really worried about my bagel career, and obviously that worked out. So we're moving on. It did, obviously. Obviously. So all this talk about having many talents in various aspects of life brings me to today's designated drinker. I can't wait for her to help explain the mess that I've just spewed. So please welcome the jack of many trades, the tour guide extraordinaire, and the founder of Off the Mall's Tours, Katie Kirkpatrick. Welcome to the show. Hi, ladies. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having well, me. It's, it, it, well, you're the tour guide, so we're just going to sit back and let you guide the rest of this shit out. How about that? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> the pressure. The pressure. You'll do great. The shot I'll have to take before we get started. <laughs> so why don't we do that? Why don't we just have a little bit of sip? We could take off the edge, just like, you know, as ladies do in the afternoon. Jeannie, got your little sip ready to go? I do. I do. We're going to do a little sip of a uh, bullet. Oh, yeah. Neat, of course. Cheers, ladies. Cheers. Oh, yeah, that's going to help. Yeah. Warm the belly, numb the senses. <laughs> right. That's right. Calm the nerves. There you go. So, um, Katie, tell us about what started this off-the-wall tour company. What's behind all that? Yeah. So, uh, it's uh, off the mall, as off in the, the mall. mall. Sorry. No, that's okay. Yes. It's, uh, yes. It, it is intended to be a play on the phrase off-the-wall, right? Meaning a little bit 
yep, a little bit off the beaten path, a little bit nutty, a little bit different, you know. And um, so I'll, I'll tell you just a, maybe a little bit about my tour guide journey. I've been guiding for a few years. I started with a company by the name of Nightly Spirits. And I, I joined this company. It's a ghost tour pub crawl company. And they have locations all over the country, but they did get their start in Washington, D.C. And I worked both their locations, Washington downtown, which is close to uh, the White House, and then our old town, Alexandria location. And it's, it's, it was fun. I, I took the tour before I got interested in leading the tour. And I applied for a job there because I loved it so much. My friend who was doing it before me, she, you know, wears costumes and talks about interesting historical stories. And also, of course, it's a ghost tour. So I've always been interested in ghosts. I've always been interested in the paranormal. It's just that was the kind of kid I was. I read, you know, young adult horror. I, you know, then grew into Stephen King and all these other things and loved horror movies. So anyway, all things considered, it was right up my alley. I applied for a job. They ended up hiring me. And I just fell in love with guiding. I love the, you know, meeting different people. I love telling the stories. Both areas are very fun to walk around. You get to know also, of course, the people who run the bars and restaurants. And it's just, it's a fun connection of both locals and um, folks visiting DC or Alexandria for the first time. It got me thinking, you know, I, I would love to just do this, you know, and, and I do have a day job, but have been interested. I, I've always been interested in cultivating other interests. I've always had a lot of hobbies. People who, as you said, I have a lot of different personas. I don't know if I call them personalities. Okay, so I took some creative liberties. Forgive me. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> oh no, no problem. No problem. I mean, they're different. They're different characters, certainly. Uh, and and uh, always been interested in that. Costumes have always been a big part of my life in various respects. So, anyway. Um, it's just a wonderful combination of things. So I decided that, you know, having now lived in D.C. for 18 years and getting to know quite a bit about its history and being originally someone who, you know, my academic background is in history and languages, I, I just thought, you know, this, this could be something really fun to do. But then, of course, I thought to myself, well, there's a lot of tour guides in the city. You know, they, they cover a lot of things, especially, of course, the monuments, the museums and things like that. But who gets into DC's neighborhoods? Who gets under that sort of initial superficial layer of here are these grand, beautiful monuments, which are fantastic. And here are these great museums that are also fantastic. But DC is made up of its neighborhoods. It's made up of the people who have lived here in, you know, day in, day out, who work here, who live and raise families here who die here and it's got a fantastic history and so I was like well let's dig deeper into that let's get into the uh, neighborhoods let's get into topics maybe that people wouldn't initially associate with DC and so that was sort of the thought behind off the mall tours was to get people off of the mall and into other parts of the city and even locals most of my clientele has have been locals who have lived in maybe one neighborhood most of the time and they're just never really thought to be really explore another neighborhood or they hear about one of my topics so like wow I didn't know that that was something you know that happened in DC I want to learn more about that and then of course um, tourists but um, lately if I started this company during COVID and uh, when people were thirsting for something to do outside, but travel, of course, was restricted. And so most of my clientele to this point have been locals. And now the tourists are coming back and I'm getting more people from out of town. And it's just really, it's a joy. 
that to watch their eyes go, oh my God, <laughs> I had no clue. So it's a lot of fun. I love doing it. I love talking about the history of this of this city. And um, so that's kind of how I, how I got started. I, and, and one of the other things naturally is that I do dress in period costumes for each tour because uh, that's just me being me and really loving to do that. So... <laughs> That's fun. That's so much fun. It, it's it's interesting, that, but it, the, I think the real key point to this is that you you kind of skated over. I mean, you work at the State Department. It's I do. And, and this is what you you do during the day, and you've had the audacity to have this major career at the State Department, and now you're going to start a whole nother career in a new company while you're a professional dancer mm-hmm. who does samba and belly dancing. Yeah, and then. Wait a minute. I think there's something else in there. Was if I remember correctly, wasn't there like Wicca at some point, like Wiccan at some point? Oh, like yeah. I mean, like your your interest, <laughs> like it's so crazy. And that's really what inspired the opening is that you have so many interests that it's you can't even like define it. And it's but but then you don't do it half heartedly. No. You're like you became a professional dancer. Like you're yeah. like, and you speak how many languages? And you went off into the world and taught language, you know, English in different parts of the world. It's crazy to think that you, and I think what's inspiring about it is that you show the rest of us that you don't have to settle and uh-huh. there's no reason why you can't do it. The only right. reason you can't do something is because you, you decided you can't. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, I wasn't sure how far back you wanted me to go, but, um, you know, you brought up the dancing, so I'll talk about the dancing. <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm not, so yes, I do work for the State Department. That was actually my very first real career job. And then that was the original reason I moved to DC. And it's been a fantastic experience. And I've worked with some incredible people. But I I came there with a very kind of narrow idea of what I wanted to do there. And for various reasons that I just won't go into detail about, um, my career never quite made it in that direction. Um, but I did have a steady job that, you know, paid my bills and was still enough. And uh, however, because my day job was just, I had, I needed a creative outlet. I've always needed a creative outlet. I've always needed something else to do that sort of gave me that spark, gave me that real passionate interest that, you know, got me excited. And, 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 uh, so I've always had multiple passions and dancing was one of the earliest. And, um, I got into that when I was studying abroad during my grad program and I met this Brazilian woman and I've always loved salsa, merengue and bachata. I started out with swing. I've done, um, you know, I was actually born in Hawaii and the first dance I learned was hula. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just dancing. My mother actually, I can attribute a lot of this to her. She was a contemporary modern and jazz dancer when she was in college and and she's now, you know, retired PE teacher, but she always incorporated incorporated dance into her lesson plans. And so um, I always watched my mom dancing. I watched people on TV dancing. I was a huge fan of Janet Jackson and Madonna and like all of these dancers. Um, I probably just dated myself, but whatever. And so I, I got into swing and then later salsa and Latin dances, whereas my mom did more like jazz and contemporary modern. I was like, world dances. That's what I want to learn. I want to learn things that are from other countries. And so um, I met a Brazilian when I was studying abroad. She showed me how to do samba. I did not get it 
at all. It was a mystery, but I love the music. So I came back to DC to finish my graduate program and found a club downtown that had a weekly samba night and they had a live dancer and she was fabulous. And so I, from there on, I was like, well, I don't know what's happening, but I need to learn this anyway. So I started taking classes and then, you know, within a year or so I joined her performance troupe and then, you know, started doing that professionally, uh, eventually started teaching, founded one of DC's first Samba schools, along with some of my um, uh, cohorts named Vava United School of Samba, which of course is still running. And uh, then I also became a belly dancer. I had a neighbor who was into belly dancing. And so she and I were talking about that. And I started going to this pirate bar that was founded back in 2007 when Pirates of the Caribbean were really a thing. And so started dancing there. That was where I got my kind of cut my teeth as a belly dancer was at a pirate bar. Was that in Silver Spring? It was in Silver Spring. So there was a place. Yes, I know all my bar history. <laughs> the Pirates Tavern. And I, I got, I'm telling you. So this place was a nerd haven. Um, that was on Bar Rescue. It absolutely was a terrible experience. I was also on Bar Rescue. I'm in the first five seconds. You can see me spinning around and stuff. Oh my God, I I don't want to call out people, but let's just say it was not fun. Like some of the people on the show. You just made my day, Katie. You just made my day. I wish people who are listening to this podcast could see Gina's face right now because she's literally doing a victory dance. Because I'm staring at you going, I've seen you before and you. it's not at Buffalo and Burger. Yeah, yeah, I'm on it. I'm on it very briefly, but it was an experience, but that place was special. It was something special. It was a home for nerds who like to dress up, you know, a lot of uh, Venn diagram with the Renaissance Festival folks almost like direct on top of each other. But it was a haven for a lot of folks. And it's where I got started as a belly dancer. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And um, the owner, um, she was married to a Brazilian. So it actually married well with my Samba life. She, she would invite uh, us to come dance occasionally. They would have Brazil night and stuff. So dancing was a huge, huge, huge part of my life. And never enough to make it a second career, but it was certainly a very strong hobby, like, uh, you know, made money off of it, but it mostly went back into costumes and makeup, <laughs> stuff like that. So it was a self-funding, you know, those costumes aren't cheap. They're like 700 to a thousand dollars. But it also took me places. You know, I did workshops and- So I'm just going to say, yeah. I've known quite, a, I've seen Samba. There, that's a lot of money for not a lot of material. I know. Oh, it's all it's all about the headdresses. It's all about the headdresses and the beadwork and the the, the the rhinestones. I mean, it's a lot of work to make those for so little material. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, but I got to travel to Egypt. I got to travel to Turkey and, and Brazil a couple times for dancing. I, I actually was in, I've been in parades in three different countries. And so that was an incredible experience and dancing is still a big part of my life. I teach uh, Samba now and um, still, per well, you know, performing has gone down a lot, mostly just because of course COVID, but uh, the Samba school is getting geared up again and uh, I'm not as involved as I used to be, but I plan to be. And yeah, it's, so that was an incredible journey. And so then tour guiding just sort of came up in the last few years. And, you know, you know, in your gut, when there's something you find that's worth investing time in and that, you know, you can really do something with. And so that's, that's what tour guiding became for me. Um, and I hope to, of course, I'm still dancing too. So, you know, I pick up hobbies. I rarely put them down until I just have like extended myself too thin. <laughs> 
<laughs> you just pass out on the ground because you have no sleep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Maybe you could do a dancing tour guide. Like you could dance your way through the tour. Like you could, I don't, no, not a good idea. Oh, oh God. I think that'd be too distracting. But it's hard to, it's hard to tell a story <laughs> while you're dancing. You prefer to just do that with your body instead of your words, which is actually a big part of Brazilian dance. It's telling a story. You know, there's a lot of folkloric parts of uh, Brazil, uh, Brazilian dance that um, is not in the bikini. There's a lot of other aspects of it. Um, and so we, we do try to represent those aspects as well in the Samba school. So, um, so cool. Yeah. So, I love it. So tell us about, um, what kind of tours you're offering? Um, my, my very first tour for my company was actually, again, I've got to give some credit to, to the, the ghost tour company and my original mentor, Renee, she was the one who first shared with me the story of Murder Bay, which is what Federal Triangle is now. It used to be basically from 15th to 7th street and uh pennsylvania to what is now constitution but at the time was at any iteration first the washington city canal and or b street after it was covered over but murder bay uh, really developed sort of in um, the earlier part of the 19th century and persisted all the way until the earlier part of the 20th century as this sort of slum that was divided by alleyways and dirt streets and it was a collection of a jumble of gambling houses, brothels, bars, uh, you know, considered to be a ne'er-do-well, you know, mecca for the city, uh, <laughs> but also probably a lot of fun. And uh, the more I looked into it and into the the rise of Murder Bay, and there was a general, a Civil War general by the name of Joseph Hooker, and he was a Union general. And the Union, uh, the, the Army of the Potomac, you know, they all trained in D.C. during the Civil War. The city itself never saw a battle, but it, it did see a lot of soldiers, presence of soldiers, because that's where so many Union Army um, personnel trained. And so, of course, along with soldiers, you get a lot of what they would call camp followers, prostitutes, women of the night, Jezebels. Jezebels. I love that word. Cyprians is one of my favorite euphemisms. I mean, there's a lot of uh, wonderful language around that. And so the prostitution population in D.C. went from 500 to an estimated 5,000 in the course of a couple of years. And that gave rise, of course, to lots of brothels. And so who was making a lot of money in D.C. at the time? Well, the women who ran these brothels. And that story to me, just it, the more I dug into it, the more fascinating it became. And it was just really a matter of this Im immense feminist story, you know, because these women, they had a lot of power. Um, they provided health care. They had economic impact. They had political impact, of course. Um, there's a couple of uh, couple that rose to such fame. They're now buried with huge markers in Congressional Cemetery. You know, Marianne Hall is probably one of the most famous. Her uh, The remnants of her establishment were discovered when they were excavating the site of what is now the National Museum of the American Indian. Um, and uh, but there are many, many others. In fact, I just I've been doing some inquiries now that the Library of Congress is open about what other deeds of sale for establishments, you know, like connecting the lives of these women to actual documentation, because there is not a lot. Uh, so I'm trying to ferret that out. So anyway, that whole story about the rise in prostitution and 
DC during the Civil War became the basis of my first tour, which is Madams of DC. And it's something no one else talks about. And, and I connected a lot. I tend to connect these things to current affairs. So the debate over legalizing sex work, I think, is a big one because of the safety issue prostitution was not officially illegal during this period of the civil war. And so they were out and about, they were in the open and they also had recourse. They had legal recourse. If somebody was harassing them, they were not in the shadows. Um, The police helped to protect them as they would any other citizen uh, in the city. And I think that that's a, a bit of a commentary on, you know, it was made illegal in 1914. That really flipped the power structure, the power of, of, of having a business and having standards and all these things really flipped from women to men, honestly. And you had a huge rise in pimps and um, abuse and all sorts of things like that. Whenever you drive something in the shadows, you're basically taking it out of its, the ability to to regulate it and uh, apply also the safety valves that are um, applied to things that are regulated and that are legal. And so that's kind of the story there. And then from there, I developed other ones that um, were stories focused mostly on women and also people of color in the city, because I do think that those are the underrepresented stories in DC that deserve to be told. We hear mostly about the founding fathers. We hear about, you know, the men who were uh, responsible for establishing DC as a city and um, our means of government and the arts and all these other things. And I'm just like, well, what about the other people? Because DC is now known, of course, uh, it it became known as the chocolate city because we had such a high population of African-Americans who lived here. And of course, women had an impact on history. And why aren't these more of the stories told by tour guides. And so that was also one of my motivations for the company is to tell those stories uh, about these people who just I don't see as often represented in history books or in tours or in museums, uh, with some exceptions, but for the most part, not as much. So um, my other tours, uh, just to give you titles, are the Ladies of the Georgetown set, which talks about women who were ruling the homes in Georgetown during the Cold War, 50s, 60s, 70s era. This is the Kennedy era, of course, Johnson Kennedy and um, before. And, and, you know, these women were the gatekeepers of their homes, which is really where all of the real important conversations were being discussed, not in the offices. Nobody did any business in the office. They did it all at home over cocktails and dinner. And these women were facilitating all of that. And no one gives them any credit for it. Uh, there's the uh, Harlem Renaissance on U Street, which I might be changing that name to be more, you know, broad because people New Yorkers hate it that I say the Harlem Renaissance in DC. They're like, you don't, that DC is in New York. I'm like, I know it's not New York. That's why I call it the Harlem Renaissance in DC. And then DC people, <laughs> you don't need to reference New York to give it credit. I'm like, all right, everybody. I was like, <laughs> it's valid points, but the roots of the Harlem Renaissance uh, were planted in DC. Also, something it's not given much credit for. You know, Langston Hughes was discovered as a writer here. You had the jazz movement of, of the mid Atlantic started in DC, and you had Duke Ellington started in DC before he went up and became, of course, the star player of the Cotton Club and, and other, and then a world renowned jazz artist. Um, And then the historic alleyways was the fourth one I developed, and that was about the alleyway system in the city, which is an integral part of the city plan that became these enclaves because there were wide enough, large enough to actually house small dom- like domains. So people started building uh, clapboard uh, dwellings on them, um, even some that were brick, and people 
started moving into them because they were cheap rent. And eventually you had a whole, when the great migration happened and you had a lot of, um, of enslaved people freeing the South, DC was the first city that they hit that in 1850 had made slavery illegal. So even before the civil war, they flew, fled the South to come up to DC as a gateway. And sometimes they stayed and the alleyways were the only place that they could find community. And so the alleyways developed these great communities, these enclaves that were somewhat out of the public eye where they could afford to live. They weren't great though. Um, it was always a point of contention. Yeah, no running water, no electricity, but they were relatively safe. And so there was always tension between city officials and the alleyway people because they looked at them as like, oh, you know, these hidden places where crime can happen. And it was like, no, that's not really how it was. And there's some wonderful studies that are out there that sort of, you know, um, upset that idea. You know, it's, these were not crime-ridden, crime-infested, hidden places. It's like, no, this is where people lived and managed to thrive. Some of them came out of it and went on to other, you know, to higher economic standing. But it's not the first time things have been demonized and made dark in order to tr right. try to rid an area of, of, of a person, of, of people. Exactly. I, mean, I think we still hear it today, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Poverty is demonized. Like it's always, this is their fault. Yes. This is their, why aren't they moving on? And of course it's more complicated than that. You know, if, if these people were 93% African-American by the 1880s, whereas prior they had been much more, 1880s, where prior they had been much more mixed in ethnicity. Um, but by 1880s or so, 1883, I think the census determined they were 93% African-American. And even though after, you know, by then you had the civil war had ended, Emancipation Proclamation didn't change racial attitudes overnight. And so no, it was no, hard to move not. out of them. Uh, so that's, it's a complicated story. And that's the thing. DC is a complicated city. It's a complicated city. You can't make it all about the heroes of, of, of the US. There are, there are lots of other stories to be told. And that's, that's what I focus on. That's what I like to do. That's wonderful. That's so amazing. I, I literally love that you're telling the story of Murder Day. Because <laughs> it had some of the... No, it's got some of the most um, prominent history of like Irish taverns yes. and um, and the end of the canal and where like all the liquor came in and then through prohibition. Yep. Um, I lived in Capitol Hill. So like, I feel like when you're saying these tours, I'm like, I know so many people that live in alleys mm -hmm. and like own homes yeah. there now. <laughs> and so cool. Like, I love that you're bringing this to light because- I lived in Capitol Hill for 18 years. So when you live someplace that long in this city, you get to really know, you know, some of the elders and they tell you the stories of all the bars and um, all the brothels and how A Street right behind um, A Street right behind mm -hmm. uh, the Capitol in Northeast was like back to back brothel after brothel. It's a very small yeah. street and Ackard Street and all these different streets. And it's like, you know, it's kind of amazing. And I think that like, you know, as you're saying that sex workers should, I believe that they should be legal. I should believe, I, you know, they, it should be to keep people right. safe. But on that note, right? I need a cocktail. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I, I yes. need a cocktail. And now I'm, and now I'm second guessing the name of my cocktail because I'm thinking, should I not give tribute to NYC on this one? All right. So, um, so we're making a drink called Aaron's NYC and Aaron happens to be a friend of mine and she 
loves a good Manhattan and so do I. And this is just a recipe that we both share and enjoy and love together. And um, this is just really fun. And what we're going to use is um, bullet rye for two ounces. And then we're going to add um, Carpano Antica uh, for one ounce. And I spelled it incorrectly on um, the sheet, Louise. So we'll make sure that we don't make the guests think that I can't spell. Don't worry. I always double check you on that one. I always got your back on that, Gina. <laughs> I know. And then we're going to add three to five uh, dashes of scrappy bitters. Now, I need everybody at home to understand something. I love this drink so much that I keep this already mixed in a container in my refrigerator in, a, in an old 32 ounce container. So when people come over, <laughs> I just take this and pour it in. And that's what, that's our house drink. And my friend Erin is uh, a doll and her husband, Jake, makes it all the time. And if Jake or Erin ever listen to this episode, I do miss you both very much. All right. So in your, uh, let's talk about scrappy bitters. Scrappy bitters is really wonderful. If you can't find scrappy bitters, you can use your favorite bitters. You can make the drink your own. And Manhattan is a suggestion of the proportions but it's a bigger story to be told of what you find and you put together and you like. So if you happen to be a fan of Dolan Vermouth or you find a really great vermouth in your travels when the world opens back up and you find yourself in France and you pick yourself up a bottle, bring it home and try it because, you know, you just might like it. So, again, two ounces, one ounce of carbonara, three to five, three to five uh, dashes of uh, scrappy bitters. Now we're going to add our ice. And I'm going to tell everybody this. A Manhattan is only good as your stirring technique, okay? So what we're going to do is you're going to fill it three quarters of the way in a stirring glass or a pint glass or a vase or any vessel that you can. I'm going to assume you want to take the flowers out of the vase, the vase first, though. Right, Tina? You're going to put it in there. We're going to, stir, we're going to stir this 30 to 45 rotations. And if you... I have no idea if I'm doing this right, by the way. <laughs> let me let me say, you're... Let me say you're doing. I've got, I can't show you. So I've got, I got one shot glass worth of the whiskey. You need two shot glasses worth of whiskey. Two shot glasses of whiskey. Okay, good. That That's good. Then one shot glass of the Carpana Antica. Okay. And then you need three to five dashes, depending if you're a bitters girl or not. I do like bitters. Okay, so you want to probably hit five. And we're stirring still, and I'm at 30. And I'm going to go a little bit more because it's a little warm today. So 40, one, two, three, four, five. Stirring is as important as what you put in the glass. So we're making Manhattans, right? So, you know, you're going to use an up glass and you're going to chill it prior. So I have a, a little chill glass. Very nice. Thank you, Louise. Um, here's what you never do. You never take a beautifully chilled glass I mean, a chilled drink and then pour it into a warm glass. You've just defeated all the purpose. So we're going to take this and we're going to pour this into our glass. Get a nice red color. And we're going to use Luxardo cherries. Um, if you don't have Luxardo cherries, there are plenty of cherries, maraschino cherries, all kinds of cherries out there. Um, the reason why I like Luxardo cherries, it's just um, a little bit thicker. And I am going to take that little bit of juice and my cherries were in the refrigerator, and I just drop it in for just ah, a little touch sweeter. And only because I like to guzzle my Manhattans instead of, you know, sipping them ever so politely um, at a bar. So 
with that being said, to Katie, and I love your tours. Thank you. Of course, I'm using completely the wrong glass. You're just going to have to forgive me. I don't have any martini glasses in my apartment. <laughs> okay. Hundred percent. Let's talk about that. If you, you know, you a martini or Manhattan, I should say. A Manhattan is you could serve it on the rocks. You can serve it neat in a glass. All you need to do is get into a vessel that gets to your lips. <laughs> and that's the most important part. Got it. That is the most important part. No leaky vessels. They yes. must be they must be reliable and solid. <laughs> we must quote her, no leaky vessels. No leaky <laughs> vessels. Pirates would agree with me. Um, maybe we'll change the drink name to that. That's funny. Or I might use that later on and I'll reference you and I'll be like, I love the name of that. <laughs> no leaky vessels sounds like a really great drink. And out of context, it just leads you to so many places. Right. I know. I kind of love it. I kind of love yeah, it's that. Like a, right. It's like the symbol of, of comments, <laughs> quotes. <laughs> it means so many things. This is wonderful. I feel like that I'm going to have to take an, um, an off-the-mall tour with like a hip flask and like really get into it. I, like, I even tell people, if you want to wear your own costume on my tour, feel free. Feel I mean, free. I'm totally down for that. You know, I, because history even if subject matter might be serious, it doesn't mean that you can't have a little fun. And wouldn't this drink be amazing on those? I mean, it's, it's, I, yeah. let's talk about the drink for a second. I, you know, it's it, one thing about the vermouth. This is, a, I am still learning because, you know, everyone knows I'm the novice on the show. Um, I really like this vermouth an awful lot, Gina. So thank you for introducing me to this. It's so, it's like, it's nice and round. I don't know how to, else to say it. It's just like, I, I like the, van oh, yeah. Carpana is amazing. It's, it's amazing. Oh, it's just how I just how I like it. Um. It's full bodied. <laughs> Hold on, it's full bodied, much like myself. So there you go. <laughs> uh, but no, I love this drink. It's really nice. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, this is wonderful. And this is the first time I've actually made this cocktail at home. And so now I know how. And I've got all the like fixings to do it. That's awesome. We have to get your tour. You have to do a walking tour when you're in Capitol Hill and make um one of, make one of the stops. We'll make Ricky's for everybody so they can have like a traditional Washington drink. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I, I recently was asked to interview an author in D.C. who just released her book. Her name is Joanne Hill, and she um, works. She, she's been living in D.C. a little longer than I have, and she just wrote this book called Secrets of Washington, D.C., and it's a series. And so she did the D.C. installment, and she covers all these great, interesting little tidbits about things you would not. Some of it's historic. Some of it is more cultural, um, local color, things like that. And we're now designing tours because we had such a wonderful interview for her book release. And uh, so we're designing tours now. And one of them is around Capitol Hill. So keep a lookout for that. Uh, <laughs> Love it. And we're, you know, always up for suggestions on places to stop on the way. I am always a big fan of including local restaurants, local bars on the routes. I'm on 3rd and Mass Northeast. I want to 
bring people to them. So I always have a stop on each of my tours about halfway or sometimes at the end. So people can use the bathroom or they can just get refreshment or what have you. Sometimes it's just fun. It helps loosen people up. We can chat a little bit. And so that's been a fun aspect too, is trying to get those, um, those local businesses involved. Uh, because again, this is like DC, right? I want people to get the local flavor. I want them to get to know local people, local business owners. And I'm a woman owned business, so we can do that. Absolutely. Cheers Cheers, to that. Cheers Cheers to that. (laughs) So when you need to make this cocktail, when she needs to go back and make this cocktail again, Gina, where is she going to go? You're going to go to designated drinker dot show for the tips and the tricks and the how to's. And you know what? Maybe we'll throw in how to make this frozen for the summer. Ooh. Add a little bit more water, throw it in a blender. Who knows? There you go. So the other thing we're going to do at designateddrinker.show, we'll make sure that we have links out to um, to you, Katie, yeah. so when people are ready to go on that tour and that ho tour. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, I know. It's called kind of like if playfully the ho tour. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love it. So yeah. that's so great. Link at our website as well as in our um, episode notes. So all you'll have to do is scroll up and you'll find um, links right out to um, what Katie's doing here in D.C. And, of course, all of Gina's amazing recipes. So who doesn't want another Gina cocktail? Come on. I know. Gosh, this is my, my, the rest of my night now. <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> see, I quit my day job to do this. Can you see why? I get to drink with Gina all the time. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand could totally get it totally get it well thank you so much for having me on the show i've had a wonderful time i've had a great you're not off the hook yet we have one question oh boy yay so in this day and age everyone identifies themselves with a different sort of spirited animal and since you are loving the dc um capitol hill maybe you're have identified or found at night the possum population you identify yourself with the possums they're always they're always there in plain sight. However, nobody notices them, right? Because that's what you're I, you're revealing. I've never seen possums. All right, sorry, go ahead. But okay. look up. They're everywhere. Look up in the trees. They're everywhere. If you can identify yourself as one ingredient, whether it be in food or cooking or in cocktail, what uh-huh. would it be and why? Oh, honey, I'm a good Petey Scotch. Yes. All the way. Smoky kind of earthy uh can bring out a broguing you if you want <laughs> i'm all about that oh give me some art bag any day of the week uh, it's like a smoking ashtray i totally love that i know it's a tire fire <laughs> tire fire i love it it really is tire fire in a glass one of my favorites <laughs> one of my favorites so yes Yes, Kirkpatrick is Scottish in my family. Like there's Irish Kirkpatricks and Scottish Kirkpatricks and I am a Scottish Kirkpatrick all of the way. I have, um, it's, it's, you know what? I feel like this was all in the divine making of this episode. So it was a pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. So we have Nick, our producer, our amazing producer yes. to thank. Thank you, Nick. Katie onto the show. Um, absolutely. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Nick. Um, thank you for hanging out with us, Katie. We can't wait till we get past all this and we can do it now, actually. Yes. Um, get out there and go see, go to see DC yeah. by, by way of Katie. It yeah. sounds so much damn fun. I can't wait. Thank Cheers. you. Yes. Walking tours are outside and safe. Cheers. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, 
engaging and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Links League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.